0: Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR. 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Herds and Curds. Today we're catching up with Carmen. Carmen. Carmen's in hey. France. Hello, Carmen. Hi, Lee. That's so good to hear your voice. You've been how away you? for a number of months. We've missed you in Australia, but you've obviously been enjoying yourself in the Swiss Alps. You've just descended the mountain in the valley, Switzerland, where you've been herding a small troop of goats. Oh, is it troupeau? How Troupe. does, troupeau. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, how many goats were you herding, Carmen?
1: Uh, I had 10 goats.
0: What breed are they?
1: I had um, five chamois, um, or um, Alpine. They're a brown goat with black sort of stripe down the back, quite a, a big, rustic goat. Um, I had a handful of salmons. I had a toggenberg, and I had a botte, which is a booted goat, which resembles also the Alpine, but... A little bit, um, uh, with a longer hair going down, da- long hair going down her, her hips and also down her, her spine. A mm. beautiful animal.
0: Yeah, she a, sounds A bossy very... animal. <laughs> bossy.
1: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted to be the boss, but and unfortunately there was a, a bigger boss.
0: Yeah. well, Or a smaller, bigger boss.
1: Oh, not me. There oh. was another bigger goat.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the boss. I'm somewhere else that... I'm only the boss when they're interested in me being the boss.
0: (laughs) So they're the boss of you. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) And had you met any of these goats before?
1: Uh, Last year I worked with four of these goats. Mm -hmm. So this is my second year on this alpage, and so I had four from the previous year and six new goats.
0: And how did they all get along?
1: Um, So, yeah, there is a, um, a hierarchy that needs to be arranged, and... So the, um, the the dominant goat from last year was she remained uh, the dominant animal. And as I said, the botte, she wanted to be also um, the dominant animal. So she often challenged the head goat, if you like, but um, unsuccessfully. <laughs> and then... Having said that, the dominant goat was not always the goat that kind of made decisions in terms of where animals would graze. So there's another goat also in her second year that um, w- w- was the pilot, if you, I suppose, is a good way to express that, that she was the one that was kind of making decisions on where um, the goats would graze.
0: So do you have any involvement in those decisions or do you just let them go?
1: After milking, it, um, after milking, so I would milk morning and night. So after milking, I would go in a particular direction, so that might be um, a handful of different paths that um, go up the mountain. The, where, where we live and where we make cheese and where we milk is at um, 1,700 metres, and then they graze up to 2,200 metres approximately. And so in that landscape, there's open pastures, there's um little foresty areas with um little bushes or bigger trees or so they've got quite this lovely diverse landscape mm. um, and the the pasture landscape is full of different wildflowers. I estimated that they're probably grazing on thirty different easily thirty different species between grass flower bushes and and trees wow um so, yeah, so I would take them in an A direction and if I was satisfied that they would continue up the mountain and graze um, without kind of creating any disturbances from surrounding neighbours who were down the mountain, if you like. So, yeah, if, as long as I was satisfied, then I would leave them and sometimes I would leave them and they'd be happy to graze by themselves or sometimes I would have to sneak away um, unseen. Or sometimes I would um, have to, would stay with them. Otherwise, they wouldn't necessarily stay in that location either. Do so they? they? It was sort of half um, half the time they were grazing by themselves, and half the time with me. And then towards the end of the season, when grazing was getting tight, I was with them for a morning graze and an afternoon graze. And so did they. Otherwise, they were interrupting locals.
0: Ah, uh, do they? Do they? So they actually do really like to follow you, though. So you had to sneak off a few times.
1: So if uh, I'm not, I could never work out what that relationship was because um, it seemed unpredictable. Sometimes they were independent and happy to go without me, and then sometimes it seemed like they were all looking at me, questioning in you know, a questioning way, saying, "Where are you going?" And we'd like to come, or <laughs> you know, we create all these kind of um the um, lines that we think goats are kind of <laughs> communicating to us but i'm not sure how true that is mm. but um yeah the, so there was certainly a interconnectedness a relationship form with those animals mm. but there's also an independence and if for example you know in the up in the morning when i would go and get them to bring them back to their they had a paddock that they could be locked in as well um when I would go and get them if they'd adequately grazed then they'd quite happily come with me if they hadn't adequately grazed then it was unlikely that they would come with me easily oh. and I would have to kind of herd them down the mountain
0: yeah so they were still hungry
1: mm. Mm. so for me then that the message there for me is that you know that to follow the, the grazing patterns of a goat and you'll, you'll be able to, to manage a herd really easily if you're working within the, within their needs
0: Mm. Because you didn't know some of them, uh, six of them, how long do you feel it take takes you to really form a relationship with them?
1: Four of the new goats I had were very um, domesticated, so they were, it was fairly straightforward. I had one that was quite uh, wild, so that took time, but actually every day I would brush the goats. And with with 10 animals, it's very easy to find the time to brush that them and goats love to be brushed they're very tactile and it's a small pleasure for goats to be brushed and it was a pleasure for me as well Mm. I think I became more attached brushing than they did but I think it was a really good technique to create a relationship with that animal and you know every night I'd have a little goat queue (laughs) um, waiting to be brushed so it was an effective tool for getting to know the animal and making them accustomed to me and you know my most wild goat who I couldn't couldn't brush in the park. I could only brush when she was tied up to be milk And yeah, originally I couldn't brush her in the park. And then within perhaps one month, then I could brush her when she wasn't tied up for milking.
0: And do you um, when when you have to leave them? Um, is that pretty sad? Very sad. Yeah. Very. Sad. It must be <laughs>
1: terrible. But and. They're all looking at you as well. And, you know, when I left them, they were in their park, in their their paddock. And actually they were all looking at me and calling. And so that was very, that was challenging. And I really felt like I deserted them. Mm -hmm. However, um, three weeks later I went back. And they were in a similar area to where um, the Alpage was. And uh, once again in a park, um, in a paddock. And I called them and they came. They all made contact with me and said hello. But then that was it. So that, you know, for them, I suppose the relationship is over when you don't see them on a a habitual.
0: They know it's over when it's over.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) it's not the same kind of, oh, yeah, you're not part of our day-to-day routine anymore. So that's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR.
0: We should also get on to a little bit about the the cheeses you were producing and what the production levels are of the goats and, yeah.
1: Um, So I was making mostly fresh cheese, so a 24-hour lactic fermentation, um, um, which were fresh and I matured some of those cheeses as well to grow a little geotrichum rind on the outside, that little wrinkly off-white rind. Ah,
0: oh, excellent. Um,
1: so I made three different formats of that cheese, and then I made raclette and tom. So in my season over four months or three and a half, three and a half months, the production was just over 2,600 litres of milk, mm. and I made 18 raclettes about two and a half kilos, 40 Mm -hmm. wheels of tom that were about 500 grams Mm -hmm. and about two and a half thousand lactic cheeses. Wow. Varying (laughs) in size. So.
0: That's incredible.
1: It's a great little production. Yeah. Which is a beautiful uh, quantity actually. It's a lovely number of animals to work with and it's a great you know between 20 and over the season, the milk dropped, but between thirty and, and then it dropped down to about twenty-two at the end of the season. So it's a you know it's a lovely quantity of a very manageable quantity of milk to work with.
0: Hmm. So who who's mainly buying the cheeses?
1: Uh, local. So we have lots of visitors at our alpage, so that's really great. And then the primary production of that alpage is um, cow's milk raclette, and so the goats. Cheese goes down to the, the to all of the shops mm. where the raclette is sold, and mm. then we have a small, not a shop, but it, you know we have the possibility of selling at the cheese room as well. So we sell, perhaps I sold a, a third of that production at the cheese room.
0: So it's like a farm gate thing or a cellar door yeah, or like something. Yeah, like a
1: farm gate, but with no yeah. hours attached.
0: Yeah. So you're just like lucky if you if you're, we're awake, if then you're
1: there. There's, yeah. There's
0: a sale. Yeah. And how were people receiving your cheese?
1: Well, it's a very cow oriented valley. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, cheese production is very dominated by cow's milk. So there's one advantage there that there's very little goat's milk cheese production in the region. So that's great. However, people don't necessarily have a palate for goat's milk cheese. So mm. it's about lots of it was introducing people to um, goat's milk cheese. And this year I had. Customers from last year and, and of course some new customers as well, but hmm. um, people were a little bit more open yeah. to goat's milk cheese.
0: You're listening to Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne and today we're delving into Carmen's experience of this season's alpage in Switzerland with her small herd of goats. It is your second season on alpage and um, one of your goals you mentioned in in the first program that we did with you uh, was to move away from industrial starters and were you successful in that this year?
1: I was, I... um so, yeah, being on an alpage I wanted to use really... I aim to use really traditional cheese-making techniques. So, and it's it, with goat cheese, admittedly, making a lactic goat cheese, it's fairly straightforward to use a whey starter. So that's saving a little bit of whey from your previous day's production and um, culturing with, with, with whey, with your own um, production of whey. So originally I used an industrial starter to start my... Production um, to make sure that I didn't have any variations, just to be sure that I could get a good acidification of the of the milk. So I used an industrial starter, and then when I was happy with that, I actually converted to a bulk starter. So I was still using an industrial starter, but I would just culture a small amount of milk for twenty four hours, a small amount of raw milk for twenty four hours, before using that as my starter. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to a waste starter, and then from time to time, if I was unhappy with the curd, I would go back to um, a bulk starter with the industrial culture. So that the waste starter is great as long as you're happy with the um, acidification of your curd. So for a lactic, you want a pH of around 4.8 or 4.6, excuse me. And so as long as you were happy, as long as I was happy with the acidification of the milk of the curd, then I would continue with the waste starter. Mm. And then I also did some experiments with um, no starter at all. So that involved um, maturing the milk, and so it's interesting to see the quality of the milk when you get a great curd from um, just the natural lactic acid bacteria in the milk. And um, I didn't sell those cheeses just as just to be really cautious with mm. um, with yeah consumers. So that was for personal consumption, but. They had they were good outcomes, but uh, honestly, I think that the way start the, the cheeses um were more interesting, and the texture was also more agreeable so I think it's interesting to see what bacteria is in your milk it's interesting to see the quality of the, your milk and to see that your milk acidifies in a in a in a positive way and not kind of creating off flavors mm. but um I think that with the acid, with the waste starter, that you can probably have more control and more consistency in your production.
0: Does it make a difference to flavour? I think what?
1: I think that one of the problems with the industrial starter is that the dosage is often incorrect, and I think particularly with small batches of of cheese, that it would be really hard to dose starter in, in a small enough quantity. That oh. often, so you're overdosing with um, industrial culture, and then you get this. I don't know how to describe the flavor, but I at the beginning I was never happy with the cheese because I was like, mm, all I can I feel like all I can taste is industrial starter. And mm. It's acid. It's I don't even know how to describe. It's a uh, maybe a more sour, right? More sour flavor than an acidic fla- flavor. Like, but that's a problem I think probably t- to do with the tiny quantities of milk I was processing. So,
0: yeah, and just in terms of like you were saying that the goats are grazing on up to thirty different plants and and so one would think that if you can not have an any kind of industrial starter that potentially I don't know, the uniqueness of that environment would be able to be expressed a bit more
1: I, I think so, I question whether I've got to kind of refine enough palette to really mm-hmm. um, and particularly because I'm there for four months of the year and I do we do see some change in that landscape from the beginning to the end but I think you would probably need to see a landscaper every year to really um, highlight differences in. Flavour. In the, the flavour. Mm. And I really think, yeah, as like I said, I don't know that my palate's mm. refined enough for that either. Mm-hmm. I think for me, one of the most important things about the diversity of the landscape is that how that translates in terms of the health of the animal and when you've got that diversity, particularly for gro- for goats who have a pretty high nutritional plane and high nutritional needs that then they can really um they're browsers, they're not grazers, so they browse on different um herbs, plants, flowers, um, you know, shrubs, leaves, bark. So, you know, they they're actually able to meet their nutritional needs because they've got such a diverse landscape to work within and graze within. Mm. And I think that, and you see when you, you see when the animals arrive, they're a bit wiry, their ha- their hair is a bit wiry, they're not, they're, it's going in all different directions. Um, some of them have a little bit of, some of them had parasites. So, and you see over the evolution of the over the four months of the alpage that you see the improvement in their condition. So mm. I think that's what's exciting mm. for me personally about the landscape is that the quality. The, the health of the animal it really improves in that kind of grazing situation where they get to decide what, what's appropriate for their grazing needs and I think that's also why they don't necessarily follow me mm. or you know I might take them to a landscape and then they say actually this is not, we don't want this now, we want a different landscape You're tuned to 3 855
0: on your AM dial. If you've just tuned in to 3CR why
1: would you stay listening and listening
0: a while? You said that this year you've had a couple of professional visits which um, has been great I would imagine in terms of professional development and getting feedback um, from people that you respect in the industry and one of those was a vet that um, was mentioned on during the Holy Goat program that we did with Carla and Anne-Marie so can you tell us about that visit?
1: Yeah so I was lucky enough to have um, Bruno Gibadou visit, he's a, a vet in the Jura in France and he's developed a, a technique called OBSALIM, and it's um, it means observation and alimentation. So observation and, and and diet really. So he's observing different aspects of the animal, um, and also what they're grazing on. And so one of his major, or well, one of the most important aspects of his of obslim is the the period around rumination and the the encouragement or enforced rumination of ruminant animals and he one of the observations he made about the goats I was working with is that, that goats are, are, are gourmands, they're glutton, so they'll just keep eating and, and they'll overeat if you let them free graze, free range too much so he um, encouraged me to maintain a, or create a rumination cycle for them I suppose and So he suggested that I... uh, So I was letting them graze all day by themselves and, you know, monitoring where they were in the landscape but um, letting them out after the morning milk, going and getting them for the night milk.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: he suggested that I bring them in, uh, you know, at midday to enforce a rumination.
0: What's rumination, Carmen?
1: So when goats um, are eating their food, actually, they're just... It's really... He compares it to doing the shopping, so... Oh, yeah. The goats are out grazing and they're just really selecting what they want to eat. So they're preparing for the meal they're going to cook tonight. And then the rumination period is actually the, the digesting of the food.
0: Oh, so right.
1: It's their second meal. It's when the animals actually take the energy from the food that they've selected.
0: Mm-hmm. So he and was food. suggesting Sorry. that you you get them to actually just rest in the middle of the day so that they can digest.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, and one of the, uh, almost immediately I saw a great change in their um, faeces. One of the observation techniques is to look at their their manure and immediately had this transformation. Almost all of my animals into these perfect little goat round balls. So that was Mm -hmm. (laughs) a great outcome. And yeah, I mean that's just one of his techniques. It was really rewarding. He also, you know, we had great conversations about parasites and confirmed for me that I did have some issues with parasites, you know, that they were looking a bit wiry, a little bit pale under the eyes, a couple of lean goats. And so he, I was lucky, he, um, I took a goat sample of every goat and he did an analysis for me and it did confirm that I had some parasite issues and which enabled me to treat those animals and therefore an improvement in their condition followed.
0: Cool. Uh, And um, so you also had Bronwyn Percival. Bronwyn um, is an author that we've mentioned before of the book, what's it called, Reinventing the Wheel? Reinventing the Wheel, Bronwyn yeah. and Francis Persidim. Yeah, which is an amazing, amazing book. So um, we do encourage people to try and check it out and have a read. Um, so how was Bronwyn? Uh, that was a, another a
1: fantastic visit. I, was, I felt really privileged to have, yeah, not just Bruno, but Bronwyn as well and, and Francis. So um, someone with such an incredible wealth of knowledge in the cheese room, is very exciting in terms of professional development and just to get some great industry feedback to to feel like you're not in a bubble. Because I think one of the things we, as cheesemakers, maybe we don't like one of our cheeses, but actually we eventually just get accustomed to the... We're we're obliged to eat it because we're producing it. You know, we also enjoy it, but actually then do we start to just get accustomed to flavours that actually we might not have appreciated during our first production and... And so I always worry about that, and I think it's a good question that we need to ask as cheesemakers is you know to really get some external opinions and not just mm. you know family and friends, but some professional opinions to really understand whether we're we are you know we're trusting our palate. And I think in the wine industry it's called sour palate, where you just become accustomed to. To drinking your wine and enjoying your wine mm. but really you need other you need your cheese in the context of other cheeses and so that's it's so valuable to have external um professionals come and evaluate or and just to encourage ideas and to to be understood and you know to to confirm certain practices or to question certain practices as well so mm. And in an alpine situation, it can be isolating in that sense. So you're there with your cheesemaker colleague, and you know you're you're raving about each other's cheeses, or or nod, or questioning. But you know, then you've got some um, expert consum expert consumers, really. So mm. yeah, that's very it's very exciting, and
0: yes, yeah, and I
1: think it was yeah, it was a lovely, you know. Socially and professionally, it was a really lovely visit.
0: Great. I just looked up the the entire title of the book is Reinventing the Wheel, Milk, Microbes and the Fight for Real Cheese. Yeah. And
1: it is for professionals and for people interested in great um, food production or great cheese production. It's such a fantastic read Mm. to understand what's going on in our cheese industry in a modern context but also historically. And I think it's a really
0: valuable um book yeah, well, for I, our
1: industry
0: i found it interesting i mean we've spoken about this but i found it interesting definitely as a, a lay person um i was able to understand it had awesome excellent like stories of people and places and just um so even a, in a way a travel log as well as um mm-hmm. as well as a critique of capitalism and and mm-hmm. the you know changes over time of um industrialisation on on, you know small farmhouse practices it was great so yes we do encourage you to get it get out there and have a read of that and um, Carmen we have to wrap up because as usual we've talked too much to each other (laughs) we can't stop Um, I could keep going on and it's so great to hear your voice you're heading back to to Australia soon we hope
1: that's correct maybe by the time this goes to air I'll be back
0: Excellent. And, um, yeah, so we'll have more conversations that we can do over the next few months in person. But um, great to have you call in to 3 Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for listening to Herds and Curds. We'll be back on the first Sunday of the month at 7 a.m., Or you can listen to our podcast and you can also find us on Instagram. Coming up next is The Gardening Show, so stay tuned.